not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God help us to understand his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, even when it's uncomfortable. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and that you give us hearts to believe and that you would uh, feed us this morning, um, that you would show us our need and you would also show us how you've met that need in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a very sobering passage. In fact, I think there's uh, enough to unsettle every single one of us in this room. There are things that are hard to hear, and there are things that are hard to understand. But I think it's important that we not duck the hard texts. And I want to give you two reasons why. And the first is this. We need to hear the truth. And we actually, we recognize this in pretty much every other area of our life. Uh, if you have a financial advisor, uh, you don't want them telling you, you're all good uh, when you're not good at all. If you have a coach, you don't want them saying, that was great if it wasn't. Uh, if you have a doctor, it would be a terrible doctor who says, you're totally okay when you're not okay at all. We need to hear the truth, even when the truth is hard to hear. But here's the second reason. The truths of the Bible actually form an ecosystem. 
In the Bible, uh, both God's love and God's wrath are present, and both are an expression of his character. And sometimes we might find ourselves saying, uh, not necessarily out loud, but maybe inside, you know, I really like hearing about a God of love. Let's get some more of that. But a God of wrath, uh, why don't we just leave that in the dark ages where it belongs? And more often than not, when we're feeling like that or when we're saying something like that, we're, we're reacting emotionally uh, to some uh, character, you know, depiction of God as a cranky deity who just flies off the handle. But the biblical depiction of God's wrath, as we will see, is very different. God is not a rageaholic. He doesn't lose his temper, fly into, you know, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, temper tantrum, become spiteful and vindictive. His wrath is his holy hostility to evil. He won't condone it. He won't settle for it. And it actually is an expression of his love for truth and justice. And what's at stake if we don't embrace both God's love and God's wrath is this. We disturb the ecosystem of Scripture. You know, sometimes uh, people will observe an ecosystem and they'll think like, why don't we just get rid of this species? You know, we don't really like that at all. And you know... You can't just do that because it ends up affecting every other species in the system. In a similar way, if you try to remove God's wrath, you actually spoil his love. You turn it into sentimentality. If you fail to see that God is both a God of love and a God of wrath, you will end up with major dysfunction in your spiritual life. And this is what I mean. If you think God is only love... That produces spoiled brats. If you think God is only wrath, that, that, that produces an abused child. And I want you to, to, to think about it this way. You know, by the way, it's, just, it's, uh, it's important we recognize cultural biases here. Uh, in ancient cultures and in some cultures still today, God is love is the stupid idea. Like, nobody believes that. Uh, but in 21st century America, God is wrath is the stupid idea. So let's slow our roll a little bit and admit our prejudices to one another. Paul does not begin his letter talking about God's wrath, if you notice. For 17 verses, he soaked us in good news. And that's what we looked at last week. And we're going to return to verses 16 and 17 again at the end. But this is the thing we have to realize. The good news is good news because the bad news is so bad. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, please, would you at least consider this? The greatest barrier to you and me experiencing the power of the gospel in our lives is our refusal to recognize how badly we need it. The world has gone horribly wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that. But a core Christian conviction is this. We have gone horribly wrong. You see, it's tempting to look around and say, well, the problem's them. It's those people. It's that kind of individual. But Christianity teaches us to say, actually, the problem is us. What is wrong with us? Romans 1, 18-32 is filled with echoes of the story of Adam and Eve and what theologians call the fall. Uh, and you may have noticed this when we were reading through. 
Uh, all these echoes of Genesis 1 through 3, creation, birds and animals and reptiles, glory and image and likeness, desire to become wise, refusal to remain dependent, exchange of truth for lie, the understanding that rebellion leads to death. And what Paul is doing here is he's beginning an argument that will take us all the way in to chapter 3. He's leading us somewhere, and we need to keep that somewhere in mind. And this is where he's leading us. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you're tempted to say, geez, this Paul guy is the worst, uh, don't forget that it was Jesus who said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, it's one thing to say that the power of the gospel is for everyone who believes, but it is another thing to acknowledge that you desperately need it. Paul is marshalling evidence of our need, verse by verse by verse, that we are sinful, guilty, and without excuse before God. He is laboring to make this land on your heart and mine, and he'll spend the next 64 verses trying to hammer this home. But don't forget, he's doing this so that you can know the power of the gospel in your life. All right, so what do we have in this passage this morning? It is like Paul took a tissue sample of the human race, he's run the tests, and now we're getting the pathology report. And this is the first thing we read in the pathology report. We are a people who live in denial. And what we're in denial of is the truth. Notice verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth are we talking about? Well, Paul makes it very clear in the next verse. It's the truth about God. For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Regardless of what we may tell ourselves or what we may claim before others, every one of us knows deep down that there is a creator. And there is a creator on whom we are utterly dependent and to whom we are completely accountable. But what Paul is saying is, we suppress this. We press it down. We smother it over. We live in denial. Now, that's, that's quite a diagnosis, don't you think? Because what Paul is saying is the problem isn't ignorance, and the problem isn't that there is not enough evidence. The problem is that we suppress what we know. And so you have to ask, why in the world would we do that? Well, Here's an idea, because if we admit that there is a God who made the world, that there is a God who made us, then we will have to admit that we are not in control. We are not in charge. And that is inherently inconvenient to some of our deepest desires. So we suppress what is obvious. How is the knowledge of God obvious, you might ask? And Paul's answer is because God has revealed himself. You know, a little earlier in our service, we read Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The universe displays his handiwork. Creation is preaching a continuous sermon 
There is a creator. The God who is invisible has made himself knowable through what he has made. Now, maybe some of you right now are thinking about uh, those proofs for God's existence, the theistic proofs, you know, the cosmological argument, uh, the teleological argument, you know, on and on you go. They have some value. You know, let's, let's not just dismiss that altogether. But Paul means something here that's even more basic than that. We live in a theater of God's glory. We are surrounded by his beauty and power. Knowledge of him is etched into the fabric of our entire existence. And when we encounter that glory, we just know, but we deny it, we hold it down because there is a bias in our broken souls. And so Paul writes, we are without excuse. And it's not just that we hold it down or try to push it away or reason ourselves away from it or try not to think about it too much. We actually deny him his rights. It's part of our living in denial. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And Paul is highlighting two things, two indications and signs about, of our living in denial. Defiance, we don't honor him as God, give him his due. And ingratitude, we don't give thanks to God. Now think about those two things for just a second. Defiance is although we know God, we don't honor him as God. We deny him his rightful place. We think we call the shots. We think we decide what's right and what's wrong. We decide how we're going to live. Uh, there's an old uh, catechism uh, question. You know, it's a question and answer that you'd use for kids. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. But no, 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 we've decided that there's a different purpose for us. And that is to glorify ourselves. It is all about me, me, me. Life is about me. You feel that in your heart, right? It's about my aims, my interests, my comforts, my pleasures, my priorities. And we resist any challenge to that self-centric understanding of the universe. Just defiance. But there's also ingratitude. Although we know God in our heart of hearts, we refuse to give thanks to him. Now, some of you might write, say, be saying right now, like, I mean, come on. So God is upset that we don't say thank you enough? I mean, that feels pretty anticlimactic. You know, you're saying this like boils down to like we have bad manners. But actually what he's zeroing in on is what Tim Keller calls cosmic plagiarism. You know what plagiarism is, right? There's been a lot of talk about plagiarism lately. It's faking self-sufficiency. It's pretending that you come up with this all on your own. We are all cosmic plagiarists, portraying ourselves as self-sufficient and independent. Or maybe this will hit a little closer to the home for some of you. You ever seen a child in a fit say to his or her mom, you've never done anything for me, right? Not in my home, of course, never happened. Never mind the fact that her body will never be the same after carrying this kid inside her for nine months and then going through labor and delivery. Never mind all the diaper changes and feedings. Never mind the up all nights holding a feverish kid with throw up all over yourself. She's never done anything for this kid. That is how we are with God. Refusing to give thanks is living in the delusion that we are self-sufficient. This is the sickness inside of us. 
And it leads to defiance and ingratitude. And it jacks up our minds and hearts. Notice what Paul says next. Became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. But you know what? We're in denial of it all. Sin is by nature deceptive. It hides itself. And it leads us to live in denial of our condition. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Mary Carr, uh, the American uh, poet and essayist. Uh, She was the child of alcoholic parents, and she swore that she was never going to be that way. But in her third memoir, yes, her third, it's titled Lit, she describes going to an AA meeting and telling everyone that she doubts she's an alcoholic because she never drinks in the morning, and she's done none of the horrible things that alcoholics do, and none of the horrible things that happen to alcoholics have happened to her. But the next morning, she finds herself finishing a tumbler of whiskey that was left over from the night before, and she realizes how many times she's done this, saying to herself, it doesn't count as drinking in the morning if you poured it last night. And she began to feel a crack in her self-deception. And it led her to say, she writes almost out loud, I have a disease whose defining symptom is believing you don't have a disease. Sin is a disease, which defining symptom is believing you don't have the disease. We live in denial. The pathology report has come back, and that's Paul's first indictment. And we may think we are so smart, claiming to be wise, he says, but we're foolish because it is foolish to live in denial. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Our denial leads to the disordering of our loves. Instead of giving God the love that he deserves, we actually give that love to creation. Notice what he says in verse 23. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then he repeats himself again in verse 25. Again, using the word exchanged exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, I, don't, I don't know if you, if, if, if you get this, but he's saying there's only two options. You either worship and serve the creator or you end up worship and serving created things. There's no possibility of not worshiping, not serving something. Sin is a worship problem, and it is an everybody problem. John Calvin wrote that our hearts are a factory of idols, producing them over and over and over again. And G.K. Chesterton says that when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. Our loves are completely disordered and out of whack, and we throw our affections onto anything and everything as a substitute. You know, what's fascinating is that many non-Christian philosophers and intellectuals have pointed this out about part of what it means to be human. They describe us as telic creatures. We're oriented towards purpose, that we live for something, and that our life gets kind of organized around some highest allegiance, some ultimate concern that rests on some deep hope 
And we say, if I have this, then my life is worthwhile. If I don't, it's not. If I have this, I've got meaning. If I have this, I'm somebody. And whatever it is, wherever your hopes lie, whatever is your ultimate concern, that that is what you worship because that's what worship is. And Paul writes that we don't just worship, we serve it. You know what that sounds like and looks like? We devote ourselves to it. We make all kinds of sacrifices for it, sometimes at great cost to those around us. We orient the entirety of our lives around it. And the range of possible idols is just almost inexhaustible. It can be money, it can be romance, it can be career advancement, it can be comfort and pleasure, it can be approval. And they tend to shuffle around, by the way. I remember uh, when I was doing campus ministry that I had a, I had a student who was uh, on the football team. And he had, been a, he had been a superstar in high school, uh, but he couldn't make it into the starting lineup in football. And we were talking about just the havoc this wreaked on his heart. Right? That, he, that he realized, I'm not the best anymore. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the greatest. And so he decided to shift gears and go into acting. Right? And you know what happened? He said, as long as I'm great at something, then I'll know I matter. But he wasn't the greatest there either. Right? We shuffle around to try to find our significance, our meaning, our value in anything and everything. It is etched in us that we will worship. And if we will not worship God, right, we will worship anything and everything else. Disordered love is the diagnosis. You know, here in this passage, Paul does link idolatry with sexual lust, sexual desire. That's not surprising. Uh, And if this were the only place where he talked about it, you might be like, ah, that guy's just hung up on sex. But you know what? If you read the rest of Paul's letters, you'll find that, for example, in Colossians 3, he describes greed as idolatry, materialism, the love of money. And some of you are saying, yeah, I, I can understand that too. I can, I can see that. But did you know what's really surprising is in Galatians 4, he talks about religion and morality as being an idol. He's talking to Christians who are sliding back into adopting the Mosaic Code. All those laws, rules, regulations is the way to get right with God, truly right with God. And he describes it as going into the worship of false gods. So think about that for a second. Sex, sex could be an idol. Money could be an idol. But you ever heard that church could be an idol? You ever heard that your morality, your religiosity, your moral rectitude, right, can be an idol? It's where you find your ultimate meaning, value, and significance, the regard it gets you in life. See, if we don't recognize the range of idols, we don't understand these dynamics of idolatry, don't have a biblical understanding of what idolatry is, right, then then we're going to be awash. We're not going to understand how the gospel maps on to our life. Do you know your idols? The beginning of self-understanding is knowing what has you by the heart. And by the way, it can be tricky because some of the things we love, they're very good things. But we want to make them ultimate things. And when that happens, if we lose them or don't get them, we feel like we've lost or missed out on everything. We take the good things and make them God things. Why is it that we do this? Well, I think one reason is Our idols are ways we try to remain in control, stay in charge. But they don't free us, they actually enslave us. Now, 
I know some of you have been waiting for me to talk about verses 26 and 27 in this passage. They speak very directly about homosexuality. This is not a sermon about homosexuality. But our passage does address it directly. And it is hard to speak briefly, really about anything, without disappointing everyone a little. But here it goes. Some have tried to downplay or deny this teaching, saying Paul was only talking about pederasty, which is something that was really common in the Greco-Roman world of older men praying sexually on younger boys, and that's not okay. But do you notice that can't be all that Paul means here because he mentions women too. Others say this is simply pointing out that it's wrong when heterosexual people engage in homosexual activity. It's unnatural for them. But that's not how Paul is using the word nature. Nature doesn't mean my nature or what feels natural to me. Paul is talking about God's created order. And if you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to, would love to actually. But here's the thing. There's another concern that I think we have to meet head on here. And that is others of us have embraced this teaching, but we have done so in smug and self-righteous fashion. And what we need to get sorted out right from the start is that we make a grave mistake in reading this passage if we think homosexuality is being singled out for castigation in a way that other sins aren't. Paul isn't identifying homosexuality as some kind of super sin. He's using it as an illustration of going against the grain of the created order. And this is how this illustration works, and it goes to work on every single one of us. Think about it like this. In creation says, I'm, God says, I made marriage. I made sex. Sex and marriage were my idea. I designed it. I designed that there would be male and female. I designed that male and female would be united together in the covenant of marriage. I gave them the requisite anatomy to accomplish the purposes for which I gave it. I thought it up. I govern it. I set the boundaries. But the human heart says, no, God, I decide. I set the boundaries for sex and marriage. I decide who I can marry. I decide what gender I can marry. I decide when I have sex. I decide with whom I have sex. You don't have the right to decide. It is my life. It is my choice. It is my body. It's my world. And do you see what this is illustrating? No, God, I am in charge. And when we do that, we move against his created order, we go against the grain. And by the way, what is our record when it comes to heterosexual purity? With the boundaries and limits God sets down, how's that going? You know what the human heart says to God? No, God, no. I'm going to do it my way. If I have a desire, I'm going to meet that desire. However I see fit, I will make the rules. Some of them I will make up as I go and change. Marriage, that's a piece of paper, whatever, I'll do as I choose. Pornography, who's that really hurting? Don't tell me how to live my life. And we could go on and on and press this into other nooks and crannies. God gives us money, and we say, that money is mine. Don't tell me how to use it. I worked hard for it. It belongs to me. Weekends, those are mine too. Don't tell me what I should be doing then. Rest, God, you say to rest, I'll do that when I feel like it. I can't fall behind. As one of my friends likes to put it, our hearts are so jacked up, we say, no, God, you are not in charge. I'm in charge. You know what? When I need you, I'll call. 
That's the diagnosis that Paul is giving of the human condition. And this is what we do, all of us do, when we worship and serve created things instead of our creator. No one should be pointing fingers at anybody else. We all move against the way God has ordered his world because we all have disordered love. We all have the same sickness, even if we might not have all the same symptoms. We live in denial, and we have disordered love in our hearts. And here's the the, the third thing. Our disordered loves lead to disordered lives. Do you notice three times in this passage It says God gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. And this is how we are to understand what it means that God's wrath is being revealed. He's handing over. At times he lets us have what we want. He allows us to go our own way. And it's kind of like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Allowing the son to take off into the far country with all his dad's stuff. And you know what the result of it is? It's the breakdown of human community. Our broken relationship with God leads to broken relationship with each other and even ourselves. You notice in verse 28 through 32, uh, Paul catalogs 21 vices. And it's impossible to put them in some kind of neat classification. But what I want you to see is the breakdown is happening everywhere. There's economic breakdown, covetousness and greed. There's social breakdown, malice and murder. There's relational breakdown with strife and envy and gossip and slander. Or as J.B. Phillips puts it, whispers behind doors and stabbers in the back. Right? There's family breakdown. There's a heart swollen with pride in verse 30. becomes insolent, arrogant, and boastful, which does nothing to bring out the health and healing of any community. And then he ends with these four negatives. We grow into senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless people. And again, J.B. Phillips says, without brains, honor, love, or pity. Do you see yourself in any of that? Do you see any of this in you? We all have the same sickness, even if we don't have all the symptoms. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of us. And it is a story of rebellion against God and the breakdown that follows everywhere. And you know what? The breakdown is not only in human community, it's it's actually in our very selves. You know, Paul uses a particular word here that is often translated lusts. When we hear that word, we usually think specifically of uh, sexual sin. But the Greek word is epithumia. And it means over-desire. It means super-desire. It means that kind of burnout, uncontrollable desire. You've got to have this thing, and if you don't get it, you're going to fall apart. And you know what happens to you when your life is run that way? You experience paralyzing anxiety about not having or losing, not just normal kinds of worry. You you experience debilitating guilt, not just the normal kinds of regret. You experience crippling bitterness, not the normal kinds of anger. We start to fall apart in our very selves. This is the human condition. This is the pathology report. 
We live in denial. We have disordered loves, and the disordered loves lead to disordered lives. Is there any hope for us? A friend of mine sent me an article a week or so ago by Paul Kingsnorth. I'd never heard of this guy before, but he writes for the free press. And it was a uh, fascinating story uh, that he told on Christmas Day, just this recent Christmas, in an article called The Cross in the Machine. And Kingsnorth talks about the emptiness he had felt for years in his life. And he tried to fill it with sex and fame and politics and kinshow. And he had grown up knowing the outline of the Christian story. But he was really disappointed with the options, the Christian options he had. He said there was the old, fusty, traditional version, you know, that, that, that just was not attractive to him. And then there was the new, trendy, progressive version, which he just said felt like a cheap imitation. Like, why do you need to go to church to get that? And so he lost interest in Christianity altogether. And eventually he actually said, I became disgusted with it. Felt like something that hated science, denied reason, burned witches and heretics by the million. Nothing relevant here for me. But he said, I couldn't escape the fact that there's something going on in the human condition that I can't quite put my finger on. So he became an animist, pantheist, and uh, he threw himself into environmentalism for, for, for years and years after. He, he worked for NGOs. Uh, he wrote for environmentally concerned magazines. He marched. He occupied. All that stuff. But he still felt like something big was missing. And he began to notice, like, we're playing God, and it feels like it's going to end in disaster. And he said, i got to figure out what is the spiritual core. And he says, well, we live in a picks and mix, mix spirituality world. Um, but what he found absent was there was no call to sacrifice, no denial of self, a very different kind of denial. In these words, no battered and bleeding God-man to tell you to pick up your cross and follow. So what we are offered is the magnification of our will. Expressive individualism disguised as epiphany. The reaching prayer of a culture that doesn't know how lost it is. And you think at this point, oh, he's going to be like, and then Christianity. But he says, no, I'm going to throw myself into Zazen Buddhism. Now, I want something more serious, more structured with traditions. But after a while, he said, it was full of compassion, but it lacked love. And it lacked something else, too. And that was worship. Something was calling me, but what? Maybe it's nature. So he became a Wiccan. I mean, this guy has tried it all. Everything seemed great. He became a priest, right? And, uh, and then one day, he started having dreams. And in one of his dreams, he dreamed of Jesus. And it connected with something his wife had said months before. She said, you're going to become a Christian, aren't you? And it shook him to the core. And he began to meet Christians everywhere, he said. He said he felt like he was being hunted, that he sensed what C.S. Lewis had sensed, the steady, unrelenting approach of him I so earnestly desired not to meet. And he writes, I didn't know the Christian story is a story of our rebellion against God, and I didn't know that by taking part in that rebellion, I had become part of the story whether I liked it or not. And so Paul Kingsnorth, shortly thereafter, became a Christian. Not because of argument, but because he said, I realized I knew it all along. The cross holds the key to everything. He grew up thinking that freedom meant the lack of constraint, but he realized that was no freedom at all. It was just enslavement to the passions. True freedom was to give up your will and follow God, to deny yourself and follow him home. No other road leads home, he wrote.
here. There's a way out of this mess, but it is not a way that we came up with. It is a way that God has made in the gospel. And that's why those first two verses that are printed for you are so important. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is a righteousness revealed for an unrighteous people. Now I want to close with this. This is, uh, this, speaking of plagiarism, this illustration is not original to me. <laughs> Got it from somebody else. But do you remember uh, Yuri, uh, is it Gagarin? The first person to ever go into space, the Russian? Uh, yeah, you know, when he went up, he said uh, it confirmed his atheism. And when he was asked about this, he said, well, you know, I, I went up into space and I looked around and I didn't see God. And uh, yeah, you can, you can laugh. And not, not long after that, C.S. Lewis wrote this little essay on Revelation. And he said, you know, if, uh, if there is a God who created everything, he doesn't relate to us the way a person on the second story of a house relates to the person on the first floor. Like you just go up there and like, oh, there you are, God, right? God relates to us the way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Hamlet won't know anything about Shakespeare by going backstage or upstairs, the only way Hamlet is going to know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes information about himself into the play. Revelation is what we're talking about. But get this, Dorothy Sayers, some of you are fans of Dorothy Sayers. She was a mystery writer, and she was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And uh, she wrote the Peter Whimsey mystery novels, it's about this guy, he's an aristocrat, he's a sleuth for fun, um, great dude, but he also happened to be single and lonely. And at one point in the series of novels, a woman shows up in this series named Harriet Vane. And guess what? Harriet writes mystery novels. And Harriet was one of the first people, first women, to ever graduate from Oxford. And Harriet and Peter get married. Now, you can see where this is going. Many people looking back realize Dorothy fell in love with her character, saw him in distress, saw him lonely, and so she wrote herself into the story to rescue him. And do you realize that this is exactly what the Bible says has actually happened? That God looked down on the world that he had made, on us that he had made, that he saw we have gone wrong we have reasoned ourselves away from him. We have suppressed the truth that we know. We've gone in the opposite direction. He saw us sinking. He saw us dying. He saw us falling apart, and he wrote himself into the story. In the person of his son, who went to the cross and died for us. You know, this is so amazing. That language of God gave up that shows up three times in our text, you know, it shows up again in Romans 8.32. You know what it says? It says, God gave up his only son to die for us, that we might have salvation. And in Ephesians 5, it says the Son, Jesus, freely gave himself up. It's the same word for his people, out of love. It's God writing himself into the story to rescue us. If sin is us substituting ourselves for God, salvation is God substituting himself for us. The only way that you and I can have our hearts pulled away from worshiping the wrong things is to have them pulled towards worshiping the right thing. What more do we need than the gospel to do that? When we do business with God in the gospel, then we don't live in denial anymore. 
then our loves begin to be rightly ordered. And then we actually find our humanity enhanced instead of diminished. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, even when it makes us so incredibly uncomfortable. Because we need to hear the truth. Uh, We need to know our condition so that the power of the gospel can land on our hearts and bring us its release. Lord, would you do that now for us in this very moment, whether that's for the first time ever in our lives or for the millionth time? Would you put on display your glorious saving love? We need it. We desperately need it. Would you make it ours, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.